just going to be one class. And for those of you that were in the other class, what we were doing was doing an overview of the Old Testament. I taught Genesis uh, through Song of Solomon. And now we're going to do the second part, the rest of the Old Testament, which is essentially the prophets. And so it's going to be uh, 15 weeks, Isaiah through Malachi. Now I say 15 weeks because obviously in these months we do have a lot of Sundays where um, we're not going to have class or we're not going to have this class. So in March, every March, we've been doing, well, for the last couple marches, we've taken a couple Sundays to focus on missions, uh, calling it Missions Emphasis in March. So those two Sundays we won't have this class. We will be having a Sunday school hour or a discipleship hour, but we'll be focusing on missions. Uh, so this March 19th, Mark Christopher, um, our missionary from South Africa, one of them, is going to be here, and he's going to be preaching and doing the morning service as well. So he'll be teaching the class. And then in this class, um, either myself or Ben will be teaching on something having to do with missions. We haven't nailed down all the details yet. Easter Sunday, we typically don't have a class. We have an Easter breakfast instead. And then May 21st, we're having another one of our missionaries slash local outreach Ryan Washburn, who we support doing ministry in a very rural part of the state, Prize Valley, he's going to be here doing, uh, doing the whole, the whole kit and caboodle that Sunday. We're going to do like an interview of him to get an update on his work and talk about rural ministry on the twenty-first. So, so those four Sundays there won't there won't be the normal. These two there will be no class, or there won't this one there will be no class at all. These three there'll be a different thing going on during the discipleship hour so i'll keep you posted on that but as you can see this is how we're going to work through the the prophets some of them we'll spend a little bit more time on than others and then we'll take most of the minor prophets we'll take them two at a time except for the last couple so i'm going to spend two weeks here sort of introducing the prophets to you we're going to do an introduction to the prophets in general and then next sunday i'm going to just talk about the prophets in the New Testament. A lot of, as we go through the prophets, there's going to be places in which it really, how you understand what this prophet is talking about is going to depend a lot along about, it's going to depend a lot upon your understanding of how the prophets, the oracles of the prophets are fulfilled. And, and that means how you understand the relationship between the prophets and the New Testament is going to really affect how you interpret the prophets. And so there will be some difference between how you might understand, some of you might understand that issue and how I might understand it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that just to sort of lay my cards on the table, nail my colors to the mask, so to speak. And hopefully that way I will avoid some of the, some of the questions later on, like, wait a second, you know, why did you say that about that? Well, it will have a lot to do with this class here. I, I totally understand it's an area where there's some disagreement within our church even. And these are things that we can disagree on without falling out with each other because we know that they are sec- secondary issues. While not unimportant, they're not foundational to our faith. So, Okay, well with that said, we're going to dive in. I just want to talk first about terms used to describe the prophets in the Bible. 
One is, or there are two Hebrew words that are really synonyms with each other, roe and hazeh, and both of them are typically translated by the word seer. So 1 Samuel 9, verse 9, for instance, you see, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And that was connected with the fact that prophets often receive their uh, revelation through by way of a vision. So that's one, one term or one set of terminology in, that you will see in the scripture that refers to prophets. And the other is the Hebrew word navi or nabi. And that is typically translated in your English versions prophet. And you can see these two words side by side in uh, 2 Kings 17.13. says this, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes, etc. So you see there the word Navi, translated prophet, and then the other terminology, seer, that they basically refer to the same person and the same function in Israel. You also will see the term man of God often used to describe the prophets. So this verse here, 2 Kings 5.20, refers to Elisha, where he's called the man of God. And that, that phrase is often an alternative way of referring to a prophet in the Old Testament. Okay, so seer, prophet, man of God, these are terms used in the Old Testament to refer to a prophet. Now, what is a prophet? Well, there's some things to say here, but essentially a prophet is a man or a woman. So the words, the Hebrew words would have a feminine form. You might see it in your Bible, prophetess. But a, a prophet, a man or a woman who speaks God's words to other people on God's behalf. So that phrase, thus says the Lord, is often used by the prophets when they're speaking. So they're clearly claiming overtly to be relaying the very words of God to other people. All right, So you could call them God's mouthpieces so that when you think of it, it's not just that they were given inspired thoughts or inspired ideas that they, that they relayed to people in their own way, but rather that they were speaking the very words of God. Thus says the Lord. Also, their prophecies are enabled, they are enabled to speak, but they were enabled to speak God's words, the prophets, by the Holy Spirit. A key text in this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. You're familiar with this verse where Peter reflects back on the prophets. He said, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is the person of the Trinity who directly so works in a person that he enables them to speak the words of God. Um, you might say that the prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so a prophet speaks the word of God enabled by the Holy Spirit. 
the mechanisms by which prophets received their revelation. How did they receive their revelation from the Spirit? Well, there were various ways recorded in Scripture. Everything from Moses up on top of a mountain in the cloud hearing directly from God to more mysterious ways that a prophet just... We don't actually know how exactly it's all working, right? So sometimes it's told to us, and sometimes it isn't. And the exact way in which it occurs is not always known. Although, uh, one of the reasons why prophets were often called seers is because it was a very common way that a prophet would receive a revelation was by way of a vision in a dream. Okay, so let me just give you a few references here. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. And he said, Hear my words. This is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron about Moses. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. And then in verse 7 he says, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. So, you know, Moses was a sort of special case, a, 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 a prophet who had more intimate uh, conversation with God. But typically, he's saying, the Lord's saying that he would speak to a prophet in a dream, in a vision, right? And you see this explicitly in places like Ezekiel 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God, right? Now, there, it doesn't seem to be by way of a, a dream as he's sleeping, but rather he's awake and he sees a vision of God. Now, it's, we, don't, we can't know for sure if he, that he was awake, but it seems to be the case. Daniel 7.1, which is the section of Daniel where he begins to receive these apocalyptic revelations, um, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So there he's asleep, and he has a, God gives him a dream, and he sees in the dream visions. And this is the mechanism by which he receives revelation from God. Okay, so that is, what is a prophet? Man or woman speaks God's word on, to other men on God's behalf, enabled by the Holy Spirit receives that revelation in various ways, but often through visions or dreams. Okay, prophets in the Old Testament. The only reference to a prophet before the Old Covenant is in Genesis 20, verse 7, where the Lord is speaking to that pagan king Abimelech, and he describes Abraham as a prophet. And that kind of makes sense, right? Why do you think he would describe Abraham as a prophet? What do you think? He was working through Abraham and telling Abraham where to go. Abraham was receiving revelation from God, right? I mean, the Lord told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land that I would show you. And there's multiple occasions in the book of Genesis where Abraham hears God speaking to him and even speaks to God. So those interactions are somewhat mysterious. But Abraham is described as a prophet, which 
makes you think that he wouldn't be the only one, right? Who else might be described as a prophet prior to the Old Covenant? Noah. Yeah, perhaps Noah. Uh, he had received revelation regarding the ark, right? And the other patriarchs, right? I mean, Jacob had that dream, the ladder reaching up into heaven. I mean, so, in other words, it's not to say that there wasn't prophets in that sense from before the Old Covenant, but in terms of being mentioned explicitly in the Old Testament, prophets were primarily mentioned in the context of the Old Covenant, right? Starting in Exodus and onward, okay? So... Moses is actually the first and greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. You might think of Moses as sort of the fountainhead of prophecy in the Old Testament. Why would you say, why would you think that, why would we say that Moses is the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets? Because he walked with God and talked with God okay you had that sort of special intimacy where the writer even said the Lord even said that to no prophet do I speak face to face like I do with Moses so there's a degree of intimacy but what else the revelation of Jim Graham was foundational yeah I mean he was the primary medium through which God gave the old covenant itself the old covenant revelation you know including the ten commandments and all the old covenant law so he was his revelation was foundational to the entire old covenant period much like the apostles to the new covenant and if you think about it you know you have the the pentateuch itself this massive body of literature um, which were were the foundational old covenant documents were given through Moses. And so he's presented in the Old Testament as a a sort of quintessential prophet, a paradigmatic prophet who who would sort of provide the prototype for prophets to come in the Old Covenant period. So for instance, in that famous passage in Deuteronomy 18 where the Lord talks about uh, the prophet to come, which we know from the New Testament was actually referring to the Messiah. Listen to how it describes it. It says, this is Moses speaking to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then again in verse nine, verse 18, I will. he quotes the Lord, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. I think it's in Acts 3 where that passage is referenced as being fulfilled in Jesus, right? So Jesus is the prophet. So think about it. Jesus is a prophet, not like Elijah or Ezekiel or Isaiah necessarily. He's a prophet like Moses, right? A quintessential prophet, the the prophet par excellence. The, and so Moses is given as the sort of prototype for all the prophets, but, but ultimately for the Messiah as, you know, the one who is called the Word of God. And it's interesting that you see his preeminence me- mentioned at the very end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Listen to what it says of Moses. And there was not, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, 
whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the Pentateuch comes to a close with this sort of uh, closing remarks written by someone other than Moses about Moses. And they say he is the greatest uh, prophet in the Old Covenant, right? Both because of his, rep- his intimacy with God and because of the signs and wonders that he performed. And that's another thing is that, you know, there were other prophets that did great signs and wonders, but none of them like Moses, right? None of them compared to Moses. Malachi is the last Old Covenant prophet. So you have Moses, prophet, 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 some of them greater than others. And then you have Malachi as the last Old Covenant prophet, that at least that we know of. And he seems to be presented as giving the last word from God before there would be this period of silence. Think about this. 400 years of silence from God, right? where there was really no prophecy given. That's, that's a very dramatic thing, isn't it? Four centuries of God zipping his lips, as it were. Not to say he wasn't active or didn't care about Israel, but that's what we call the intertestamental period, from Malachi to Matthew, so to speak. Um, or from Malachi to Jesus, but in terms of Scripture... Matthew. In fact, we could even go back further, right? Who's the next prophet after after Malachi? John the Baptist, right? But so Malachi is the last Old Covenant prophet. Any questions before we move forward here? Okay. Feel free to interrupt at any point. Varieties of prophets. I just want to kind of describe some of the varieties of prophets. Some prophets were named Ezekiel, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, etc. Others were not. Sometimes you just have mention of a prophet or prophets, plural. So, for instance, in the Judges period, Judges 6, verse 8, says, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, and it quotes his words, but doesn't name the prophet. Somewhat more mysteriously, in the period of the kings, 1 Kings 18, 13, it says this, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? This is the days of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, you know, thinks that he's the only one left. And he he meets this man, Obadiah, who comes to him and he tells Elijah that he had been protecting prophets in Israel from Jezebel. And he talks about a hundred men, a hundred prophets that he preserved in two different caves. Just in cave, one cave got discovered. So there were apparently quite a few prophets in Israel that we never know about. We aren't told. They're unnamed. Some prophets were men. I'm not going to give you scripture references there because obviously we could tick them off in our mind. And some were women. So who do you think the prophet mentioned in Exodus 15.20 is? I think Exodus 15, at the end of their deliverance out of Egypt, 
Who would be the prophetess mentioned? Miriam, Miriam right. Um, Judges 4, who would be the prophet there? Do you remember? Deborah. Deborah. And then 2 Kings twenty two fourteen talks about Holda, a prophetess, that some of the leaders in Israel went to to inquire of the Lord. Some prophets wrote their oracles down. So we know their names because we have them some of their oracles in, preserved for us in Scripture, right? Um, and then others did not. Some very prominent prophets did not write down their oracles, right? And I just listed some examples. But first, Samuel, Samuel himself, right, was a prophet, a great prophet, but not a writing prophet. I mean, some of his words are preserved for us in the narratives of the Old Testament, but not his, not his oracles necessarily. Second Samuel 7, the prophet that often would interact with David, what was his name? Do you remember? Nathan, right? So you have Nathan the prophet, and others, Elijah and Elisha, right? Those are the ones in First Kings. First and Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha. They're, they're some of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. So great that when Jesus came on the scene doing the type of miracles that he did, who did they think he must be? The last time they'd seen miracles like this in Israel was in the days of Elijah and Elisha, right? So they thought, maybe this is Elijah come back from the dead, or um, especially Elijah, perhaps, because he didn't die, right? And after all, the prophet Malachi had said that Elijah would come in the last days. So some great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they, they were some of the most prominent prophets in Israel, and yet we don't have any of their oracles, really. They weren't writing prophets. So again, varieties of prophets. Some perform miracles. So Moses, obviously, performed many mighty signs and wonders. Samuel, actually, in 1 Samuel twelve eighteen, you might have forgotten about this. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So Samuel prays, and the God sends rain upon the land, uh, performing basically a sign, a wonder. And of course, um, Elijah and Elisha perform many signs and wonders. In fact, there's, there's these very striking parallels when you actually compare this, the specific miracles that Jesus performed and the mir- specific miracles that Elijah and Elisha performed. They're very similar, aren't they? Raising people from the dead cleansing the leper, healing the sick. So they performed. They also performed miracles. But there are others, many, many others, who did not perform miracles, or at least it's never recorded that they did, right? And you think of prophets like, like Malachi and Zechariah and Daniel and Ezekiel. That there are miraculous events that at times surround their ministry, like Daniel being delivered from the lion's den. But... They weren't explicitly described as performing signs and wonders. Okay, and then finally, some, some people were both prophets and fulfilled other functions in the life of Israel, like they were leaders in Israel. So, for instance, Moses, right? He was Israel's leader, and he was also Israel's greatest prophet. Or Joshua, do you remember that when I preach through Joshua, you get to the end and he 
of the book, and he actually utters oracles, he utters prophecies to the people. He says, thus says the Lord, right? And he primarily is exhorting them about maintaining faithfulness to the covenant in the land. So he was a prophet, but he was also their leader. Samuel as well. He, he had actually said that Samuel judged Israel, that he was sort of the, the last of the judges. But he was also a prophet. And of course, David, right? He was the prophet king, right? Because we have many of his oracles preserved in Scripture. Where do we have them? Primarily. In the book of Psalms, right? Some of them are very striking, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, these oracles that speak directly of the coming Messiah. Um, but he, he delivered much revelation. And there's a sense in which you could say the same as Solomon, right? In the sense that Scripture was delivered through Solomon, right? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, assuming it was written by him. So, varieties among the prophets. Some were names, others were not. Some were men, some were women. Some were writing prophets, others were not. Some performed miracles, some did not. Some were both prophets and fulfilled other functions in the nation. All right? Next, I just wanted to show you a couple of graphs or uh, images here uh, just to give you a sense of the timeline of the prophets. So, What's listed here on this is only the writing prophets, the prophets whose oracles we have preserved in Scripture, right? So you can see all of their names there. There were other prophets, many other prophets that we could have put in here that weren't writing prophets. But this gives you, when you look at the books that we're going to cover in our class, you can kind of see where, what time frame they, they ministered in. This doesn't tell you whether they were in the of Israel or Judah, but it does tell you sort of when in the history of Israel their oracles were delivered, and you can kind of see some of, the, some of these may be somewhat surprising to you, like you didn't think of Jonah as being very early on in the, in the stage. Jeremiah was right around the fall of Jerusalem. And of course, how could Daniel and Ezekiel, they give the, gave their prophecies in, uh, already in exile? How could they be sort of contemporaries with Jeremiah? How could that be? Jeremiah ministered up to and some a little bit after the fall of Jerusalem. Do you remember why? How could they be contemporaries? How could Daniel and Ezekiel be in Babylon and Jeremiah still back in Judah? They were part of the, the uh, people that were exiled. They were taken out. Right. So there were two falls of Jerusalem, right? There was an initial siege, an initial fall, and an initial wave of exiles, during which time men like Daniel and Ezekiel were taken. And then there was a second fall at the end of Zedekiah's reign, where you know they rebelled against Babylon, even though Jeremiah was telling them not to do so. And the Babylonians were like, that is it. We are tearing this place to the ground, and that's what they did. And they took basically the remaining Judah, Judahites, or Jews, into exile. And so that's why you could actually have prophets that were already in exile, and some that were still back in Jerusalem, or in, in Judah. And then, of course, these prophets here, you see that they are what you call, they ministered in what you call the post-exilic period, after the 70 years when Cyrus released some of the Jews to return 
and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, you have prophets out here that ministered in that in that period of time. All right. By the way, was Lamentations a prophet? Was that a, a name? No. So who wrote that book? Yeah. But most people at least think that it was Jeremiah, although the author is technically anonymous. Okay. Another graph here. This one sort of shows you the locations of the writing prophets. There are a couple of non-writing prophets mentioned here, Elijah and Elisha, but mostly what you're seeing is the writing prophets. Um, You see that some ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. So you had Amos, Hosea, Jonah were famously ministered to the northern kingdom. Um, The southern kingdom of Judah... You had others that ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Jeremiah, um, as well as um, these prophets here. And then you had some that ministered during the period of the exile, in other words, after the first siege of Jerusalem, between the first and well, between the first and second exile and also until the return out of exile. Daniel and Ezekiel. And then you had some prophets that ministered in the Babylonian or in the post-exilic period where people had returned to the land of Israel. So this sort of shows you locations. There were prophets in the northern kingdom, some of the writing prophets, some in the southern kingdom, some in exile in Babylon, and some back in the land after the return out of exile. Okay, any questions about some of these basic details? Okay. All right. The function of the prophets. Vaughn Roberts, who wrote a little book that I found helpful called um, God's Big Picture, has helpfully described the prophets. I've always remembered this description because it really makes sense to me having studied the prophets quite a bit myself. I preached through Jeremiah in the, in the church in Sacramento where I was before as covenant enforcers. All right? Um, so you think of that parable that Jesus taught. A king purchases a vineyard, leases it out to tenants, and then he sends servants to say, hey, give me some of the produce, right? It's time. It's time to give me the, my port portion of the produce. And what do they do? They beat and mistreat the, the servants. Some of them they kill, and then finally he sends his son. And in the parable, the servants are the prophets, Right? And when you think of it that way, you think, yeah, they they were sent on behalf of the king, the one who had rightful rule over the vineyard, over Israel, to basically call them to give God what was his due, right? In other words, to keep the terms of the old covenant. They were covenant enforcers. They came to tell the people on God's behalf, keep the covenant. And, And I think this really gets to the heart of their role under the Old Covenant. They were God's messengers sent to Israel to speak on His behalf, His emissaries to hold them accountable to keep the covenant. And so when you look at the oracles of the prophets, and there's one category I'm leaving out here, and I will get to it, so don't freak out. 
But I want to focus on three main categories of, that their oracles typically fall into. And I say oracles like you read through the prophet Isaiah and you see just sort of chunks of prophecy. You could say each one represents an oracle. The oracles of the prophets fall into typically into three categories, leaving one out. That is, confronting the nation for breaking their covenant with God. And let's, what I'm going to do instead of, you know, giving you multiple citations, we're just going to look at one example of this. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. This is an easy place to start, an easy way to see these different categories all in one kind of spot. The first three chapters of Isaiah. So we'll read verses 1, 1 through 9. Confronting the nation for their covenant violation, for breaking their covenant with God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So there the prophet is confronting the nation for their covenant violation, describing the consequences they've suffered, right? That's one category of oracles that you see in the prophets. Another category is where they then will turn to call the nation to repent, to turn away from their sin and to begin keeping covenant with God again. So confronting covenant violation, calling to covenant faithfulness. So if you, if you read on here, let's read verses 10 through 20. And by the way, I skipped verse 9, but in verse 9, he called them. He says, you have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's pretty much the worst possible indictment. And then in verse 10, picking up on that, he says to Israel, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God. For are you people of Gomorrah? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bulls, blood of bulls of lambs or goats. In other words, their outward religiosity is an offense to him. Why? When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see? Calling the nation to be to repent and to begin keeping covenant with God again. Okay? And then lastly, the third category is warning the nation of the judgment that God would bring upon them if they didn't repent but continued in their breaking covenant breaking. Let's skip forward to chapter 3 and look at a place where he does this. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. By the way, it's interesting that that is a common judgment upon a nation, the nation of Israel, to give them fools, immature people for rulers. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruin shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves." Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked! It will be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So there we have an oracle of judgment, proclaiming what God would do. In this case, particularly focuses on the leaders of Israel. For leading the people in wickedness and oppressing the people in the process. And he says what he is going to do. And it's a very sober. I mean, this is a very common type of oracle in the prophets, right? So confrontation for covenant breaking, a call to repentance, and an invitation to restoration, a warning for continuing in covenant breaking.
Now, let's continue, though. There's one category of prophecies that I have not dealt with, and that is the prophets also promised that after God had judged Israel for their covenant breaking. So, remember, the prophets are ministering in this period of decline in Israel, right? This period of covenant violation until all the great and righteous kings are gone and they're finally left with two-bit despots, you know, akin to Sodom Hussein, in, in the form of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. I mean, these are immoral, wicked, unbelieving men who just are out for themselves. And this is the period in which the prophets are prophesying. So that by the time you get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying, there is no hope. God is going to judge the nation. He's going to, he's going to destroy Jerusalem. But, as all of them were anticipating this time in which like a man putting away his wife for adultery with a certificate of divorce. Jeremiah describes God doing that in the sense that he sends them away into exile for all their covenant violations, their adultery against him. But on the other side of that judgment, the prophets also foresaw a future restoration in the latter days. And some spoke of a nearer-term restoration, a return out of exile to the land, But then there was a a greater restoration to come in the last days. And the prophets often spoke of these oracles of redemption. So, an example of this would be Jeremiah 30, 31. Because I did preach through Jeremiah, I have a sort of soft spot in my heart for this section. Because Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible in terms of Hebrew words, if you toss out Psalms, because Psalms is really a collection. But in terms of an entire book by one author, Jeremiah is the longest book, not in chapters, but in Hebrew words. If you read through Jeremiah, you get it, because some of the chapters are very long. The entire book, for the most part, is judgment oracles. I remember, if you remember that graph, he was prophesying right before, during, and a little bit after that final sack of Jerusalem where the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, and the rest of the people were taken into exile. So you understand, it's primarily a book of judgment. But there is these three chapters where the editor, the one who collected and arranged all of Jeremiah's oracles in this book, put all of the redemption oracles in these three chapters. So scholars have called this, these three chapters the book of consolation, like a mini book inside the big book of Jeremiah's oracle. So it's judgment, 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 judgment. (sighs) Three chapters where it's like, ah, breath of fresh air. And then judgment, 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 judgment until the very end, okay? So the book of Consolation, this is a classic example. And let's just spend some time in this. First of all, you see they speak of this this, uh, happening in days that are coming, the latter days. So chapter 30, verse 24, you see an example of this. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind in the latter days. You will understand this. There is talk of deliverance out of slavery and exile and return to the land. Now, we won't be able to read all of this, but let me just give you a portion of that section I mentioned there, chapter 30, verses 1 through 24. The Lord came to Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 1, from the Lord. 
The, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. So there you see that return out of exile. And they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day. So again, a future period. Declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make you a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Now, I'll just stop there. But you see a future restoration out of their exile. What is, what is the language there remind you of? Another event in redemptive history. What does it remind you of? I will break their bonds off. I will take the yoke from off their neck. I will, I will um, deliver them out of slavery. The Exodus, right? So there is a sense in which the prophets describe this future return out of exile as a sort of second Exodus event. A new and greater Exodus out of slavery in Egypt, out of slavery in exile, and out of slavery in Egypt to come to the promised land, out of slavery in exile to return to the promised land. So there is a parallel there. They're therefore seeing a future redemption which would be like the exile, only greater. Also, did you see it there? A reference to the Messiah, that the Davidic kingdom. So you remember the, the prophets would talk about the Davidic kingdom at time like, the kingdom would, was like a stump, right? Where the tree had been cut down and all you have was the stump. But they had foretold that a shoot come out of that stump. A shoot that would represented David's house, a, a restoration of David's house through a, a new Davidic king. And that Davidic king, of course, would be the Messiah. And he wouldn't need to be replaced like the old ones, right? Because his kingdom would be forever. And as the descriptions of the Davidic kingdom in the prophecies, you realize, oh, his kingdom is not only going to last forever, it's going to cover the whole earth. Now, you see it there in verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So, return out of exile in the latter days, a restoration of the Davidic kingdom through a particular Davidic king. And then the tone of these oracles is one of Suffering and sorrow being turned into joy and blessing, right? Now, if you read, for instance, in chapter 31, let's just dip into this chapter a little bit, chapter 31, and we'll just read some of 1 through 30. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. And by the way, when he says that, what is striking about that, given the, the, you know, the hundreds of years of, of history leading up to this? What's that? Yeah. I mean, we take it for granted when we read it, but there's a presumption here of a reuniting of the people of God. And other prophets are more explicit about this, but 
But here you just see it talked about, I will be the clan, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. O virgin Israel, which is a very striking thing because what had Israel been like? A harlot, right? Somehow their purity would be restored. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines. You shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. So there is a, a reference to the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Like all, there's, everything is made new and restored. And that's the sort of theme in this book of consolation, uh, of sorrow and suffering being turned into joy and blessing. But by the way, what would have to happen for Israel to experience blessing? Because why were they experiencing sorrow and pain? Because of their rebellion, their, their persistent violation of the covenant. So in order to experience this, something would have to happen to them. They would have to become a pure virgin, faithful to the Lord. And that, of course, is what Jeremiah did talk about. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. This is the key to it all. A new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I, I always point this out, but I, you can't read that without seeing a contrast here. Where had the law been written before? Stone. On tablets of stone. And they'd been given to Israel. But did that help them? They had hearts hearts that couldn't keep it. So they needed the law, not on tablets of stone, but written on their hearts. And it was a way of speaking of what we call regeneration, right? Where their actual hearts would become obedient and inclined to obey God's law. And so that's part of the promise. And then also, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. So he didn't have Elijah going over to Ahab and say, stop it. Know the Lord. Because Elijah is believing, but Ahab is unbelieving. Now it says they shall all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. So this would be a regenerate community, which is the great hope. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here you have a permanent forgiveness. So, so this too, this is the key to all of the blessings that the prophets foresaw coming in the last days. And then finally, you also see reference to the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt in this book of Consolation, verses 38 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt from the, for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, etc., etc. And the last line, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. So a new Jerusalem, new covenant, new hearts, new Davidic king, new exodus, new Jerusalem. It's all new. 
All right, so if you think about the function of the prophets, covenant enforcers, confronting covenant violation, calling to repentance, pronouncing judgment if they refuse, but on the other side of judgment, out of the ashes would come a future redemption that would swallow up all the pain and suffering and bring lasting and permanent redemption. Okay, a universal message. The prophets self-consciously served the one true God who created and ruled the universe. You think of Isaiah 40, right? If you know that chapter, go and read it. It makes very clear that this God is not just the God of Israel, but He's the God who looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth and they're like grasshoppers to Him, right? He blows them away like dust on the scales. They declare that the idols of the nations are false gods, right? And we could look at this. We don't have time to actually look at these passages, but there's a famous passage in Isaiah 46 where he talks about the idols, and he just derisively says, you know, you have to chain them up so that they don't fall over, (laughs) right? They're nothing. And then he compares them to himself, and he says that he alone is the one who is ordering not just Israel's history, but human history, right? In fact, this is worth just reading Isaiah 46, Verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. So the prophets declare this universal message of a God who is God of all, the only God, who orders human history, who accomplishes his purposes through it all, and who would judge all the nations. So you think of Daniel chapter 4, where he judges Nebuchadnezzar, right, for his pride. The book of Nahum, where he pronounces judgment on a city, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. And these sections in the prophets where he just issues oracles of judgment upon one nation after another. He just like surveys the landscape. Egypt, you know, Edom, Moab, Assyria, Babylon, all of them, and he pronounces judgment because he's the judge of all the earth. But also that he would redeem a remnant from the nations. So in that famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up over the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So there's judgment for all the nations and there's redemption for a remnant of the nations along with Redemption for a remnant of Israel. There are many other things that prophets did besides deliver oracles. But let's move to the false prophets. Because even as we talk about the prophets in Israel, you have to realize that there were probably always more false prophets than there were true prophets. What were false prophets doing? Peter said, just as false prophets arose among the people, referring to Israel, and then he says, so false teachers will arise among you. So Peter's looking back on redemptive history, the history of Israel, and recognizing 
the proliferation of false prophets. They were people who claimed to speak for God, but didn't. So, very quickly, Jeremiah 14, verse 14. What does it say? The Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. The nation of Israel listened to them because they told them what they wanted to hear. So Jeremiah had that famous line, what were the prophets saying? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. When finally Jeremiah's prophecy came true and they were taken away into exile, the first wave, the prophets were telling him, oh, it'll just be two years and you'll be back. And Jeremiah's like, no, it won't be. It'll be 70 years. In fact, Jeremiah has whole chapters, chapter 23 and chapters 27 to 29. If you read those chapters, you'll see basically this is an epic clash between Jeremiah and the false prophets. And it was a real struggle for him to try to proclaim the word of God in the face of all these other prophets that were saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. They were telling the people what they wanted to hear. So who do you think was more popular? Jeremiah, who's going around with a yoke on his neck saying, you know, you guys, Babylon is going to come from God as judgment and you guys need to submit to the yoke of Babylon if you want to live. And the prophets are saying, no, God would never let that happen. He would never let his temple be destroyed and his city be... God's going to deliver you. So who are you going to listen to? The one you like better, right? Only in the end, God showed, vindicated his true prophet. And you also see in these chapters that he viciously, I mean, in a holy way, with vengeance, destroys the false prophets. Well... Hopefully this gives you a little bit of a taste of the prophets, who they were, their basic function, their message, and how they ministered alongside false prophets. And we're going to learn a lot from the prophets as we go through this uh, class. We are going to have to do it in an overview way, but I hope that the Lord will give you a greater understanding of this portion of Scripture I remember hearing uh, a pastor friend talk about how they were sitting around at the dinner table. He had older children, teen years, some of them into their college years, and they would read the Bible for their family worship. And they decided to read through one of the prophets. And, you know, you're reading through the prophets. I mean, even in your, your devotions at times, you just find yourself like, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing here, Right? It's sobering. And we meet God in a way that is in some ways unique to this portion of Scripture. We are humbled before His holiness and also melted before His incredible grace as the two, those two things come together that we ought to read the prophets more. We ought not to avoid them. We ought to embrace them because they will help us to know our God better. And uh, though they are hard, is it John MacArthur who said... Uh, soft words make hard hearts. Hard words make soft hearts. Right? So we shouldn't shy away from the hard words of the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in this looking at the prophets. We pray that as we work through this material in Holy Scripture that you would use it to 
soften our hearts, to increase our knowledge of you, to give us a greater understanding of your word, of the, of the totality of scripture, so that even as we continue to study it throughout our lives, this class will have helped us to better understand it as we read through it again and again. And we pray that you'd use the prophets in a mighty way in our souls to teach us things about yourself we might have become dull to or minimized because of our own corruption. Please help us to grow through our study of the prophets. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.